Well, good morning. You will notice a theme running throughout our service this morning. In fact, I'll ask you to keep Psalm 42 in mind as we go through our text this morning, as you're going to see several repeated themes from that, from that psalm as we uh, delve into the Gospel of Matthew. So you can go and begin turning there as we return to our study in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 16. While you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. Do you think it's possible to distill everything in life, perhaps even life itself, your very existence, down to a singular purpose? Is it possible to ask a question that brings to the forefront the essence of our existence? Well, that's a nice, easy question to start the morning off with. It's basically, what is the meaning of life? But let me tease this out a little bit further. If our existence or the significance of our existence could be boiled down to a singular question, what would that question be? In our Western culture, it seems like it must have to do with sexuality in some way, the way it's being pounded into us at every turn. Or perhaps it has to do with our self-esteem or self-worth. Now, if you're here this morning as a Christian, you recognize those are not the end-all of our existence. But what is it? I want to put before you this morning that there is a question. The answer to which matters more than any other question you will ever be asked in this life. And it reveals the very purpose of our existence. If that intrigues you and you'd like to learn what that question is, then let's read along together in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Simon Peter, I'm sorry, backing up. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others, Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we enter into our study this morning, as we consider this very significant question, the most significant, important question that we could ever ask and ever answer, the answer to which hangs our eternal destiny. Father, I pray that your spirit would work to illumine our minds, give us understanding, give us ears to hear to respond to the teaching of your word as it's unveiled before us this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, we come to a part of Scripture, a passage that is probably not unfamiliar to you if you've been in the church for any significant period of time. And I suspect it is a passage that for some of you creates a good bit of consternation. Other persons, however, may wonder what's the big deal. This passage sounds like so many other passages in the Bible. Well, the big deal comes from at least two things. The first is that we have reached the center point in Jesus' ministry. Not necessarily chronologically, though we are probably not far off from that either. But no, we have reached the point theologically. We have reached the theological center, the apex, the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry. 
where his identity is clearly revealed and made known to his disciples. In fact, we find that after this, Jesus will speak in clearer and clearer ways about his identity and his mission. For example, we read really in just the next section that from time to time, Jesus, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and raised the third day. Doesn't get much clearer than that. It's so clear, in fact, that Peter pulls Jesus aside to set him straight, to rebuke Jesus for his own words. And we'll look at that irony next week, but Peter goes from instrument of God who is divinely blessed to instrument of Satan rather quickly. There's a lesson in there somewhere for us, but we'll have to wait for next week to look at it. But there's a second reason, a second reason that this text is a big deal, and that comes from church history. 2,000 years or so of church history. For nearly 2,000 years, the Church of Rome and the Roman Catholic Church has used this passage, specifically verse 18, as well as those that follow, to claim a direct line of secession from Peter to the Pope. And this line of succession, they claim, not only gives them the ultimate authority over the doctrine of the church, but the keys of the kingdom to admit and reject whomever they wish. This passage has been used by the Roman Catholic Church in an attempt to delegitimize every other denomination and Christian. Whether it be the Eastern Orthodox, whether it be the Reformation or those post-Reformation churches. And don't be mistaken, it continues to this present day. You may say, well, I'm not seeing any burnings at the stake. What are you talking about? A good friend of mine told me a story recently. This is somewhat comical, so I'll forgive it if you want to chuckle a little bit at it. But his children were playing outside with some of the neighborhood friends. And as an argument ensued, as it does with children at times, it wasn't between his kids and their kids, it was their kids, uh, his neighbor's kids, who began arguing with one another. The argument quickly devolved into name-calling, no surprise there. And in the heat of the argument, one of the children, not over nine or ten years old, uttered the most hateful derogatory term he could possibly think of against his fellow sibling. Don't worry, you don't need to cover your children's ears. What was the thing this young boy lashed out with in anger? Well, you're, you're a Protestant. You see, that boy and his sibling and his family, they were Catholic. And the worst, most detestable thing this young boy could think to call his sibling was a Protestant. Many of us have friends or family members who are Catholic, even if nominally so. And we begin to squirm in our seats when these types of divisive issues are brought up. Those type of issues that we'll look at this morning, especially when we consider their implications, especially when it pertains to family members. And so both theologically and historically, this section of Scripture is a big deal. It's critically important to understand. But as important as it is to understand, I also want to suggest that for the past 2,000 years, our attention has, for the most part, been in the wrong place in this passage. And so as we approach the text this morning, we need to be careful not to allow 2,000 years of history drive our study and interpretation of this passage. It will be very tempting to look at this text through the lens of our preconceived ideas about what it means or doesn't mean. And I'm not asking you to jettison all thinking and everything you've ever heard, but let's think carefully. Let's come and reason together. I want us to try and put aside or at least consider another perspective this morning as we place ourselves in the sandals of these disciples as they stood around Jesus that day in Caesarea of Philippi. You see in verse 13, that's where we find ourselves. Jesus had sailed back across the sea after a very short return to Galilee. He had ventured back into Israelite territory at the beginning of chapter 16 only to hop back in the boat and depart right away. We looked last week at Jesus' back and forth trip and the interaction with the religious rulers and the subsequent warning to the disciples concerning the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
And after landing on the northern shore of Galilee, Jesus headed north by about 25 miles to Caesarea Philippi, a town in a region which sat at the base of Mount Hermon. You may recognize that name. We read it this morning in Psalm 42. And as we've discussed a few times, it can be difficult in Matthew as well as the rest of the Gospels to distinguish which disciples Jesus is talking with. Is it just the 12 who are called apostles, or is it a larger gathering of over 70 or more who are called disciples? I want to suggest that there are a handful of reasons, reasons that I believe these disciples mentioned here are that smaller group, the 12. For one, this passage closes a section that begins all the way back in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 where Jesus had been giving instructions specifically to the twelve who were called apostles. Additionally, when Jesus addresses these disciples, or as I believe these twelve apostles, we find Peter speaking up. And he frequently serves as the spokesperson, as the mouthpiece for the twelve. There are other reasons that are more implicit, which you might pick up on as we look more closely at these verses. These are just a couple of the reasons why I believe this is that smaller group of disciples. Not to mention only so many people fit in a boat. Well, Jesus, after hiking north, probably a day or so after they had landed on that northern shore, and the disciples, you remember, had forgotten the bread, they arrived at the foot of Mount Hermon. Beautiful mountain. Picturesque, poetic language describing it throughout the Old Testament. It's in Galilee territory, and it's there that he turns to his disciples and he asks a question. It's not just a question, it's the question. Who do people say that I am? Up to this point, we haven't seen Jesus asking his disciples many open-ended questions. Most of those that we have seen have been more rhetorical in nature. The answer is obvious. It's perhaps Jesus has been doing this more than we know, and this is just one of the few times that it's actually recorded for us. Nevertheless, this open-ended question is given here to catch our attention, to make us ask some very careful questions. And it's a really rather fascinating question. I think our familiarity with this text has probably caused us to lose a bit of the luster and the uniqueness of the question. If anyone else were to ask this question, if you were to turn to the person next to you and ask this question, who do people say that I am, you're likely to have them look back at you like you have a third eye on your forehead or an extra nostril. Who do people say that I am? You might ask the person next to you. You'll get a blank stare followed by a long blink. Probably respond something like, John David. They think you're John David. Who else would they think you are? Who else could you be other than yourself? But Jesus was no ordinary man, was he? Rumors had already been swirling and speculations were flying that this was the reincarnation of one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. Perhaps Elijah or Jeremiah. Or as Herod had suggested, the greatest prophet who ever lived. John the Baptist, come to life again after his unceremonious beheading several months earlier. Well, Jesus lets their answers linger in the air momentarily before making the question more personal. And he asked the disciples, but who do you say that I am? You see, since the beginning of chapter 11, we have been slowly answering this question. The question John sent his disciples to ask before his death, while he was imprisoned by Herod, are you the long-awaited one? That long-awaited one was the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus answered, we may remember from last week, by pointing to all the signs that he had done. He answered the question, though it was much more implicit, and so for these past five and a half chapters, we have seen a variety of responses to who Christ is, who Jesus is. You may remember the religious leaders have said that he is in league with Satan, if not Satan incarnate. 
That's quite an opinion to have. By contrast, a Gentile Canaanite woman, one who should have been outside and outside of understanding, demonstrated the clearest recognition of who he was, calling him Jesus, the son of David, a messianic term. But again, it's still implicit. But now, Peter, the mouthpiece of the disciples, steps forward, and he offers the disciples collective answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Again, you may recognize that language, living God, found in Psalm 42, again, that we read this morning. And Jesus' response to these words, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I'd say Peter answered correctly. You see, this question Jesus asks is the most important question that has ever been asked. And it teaches us something about faith and belief. People can believe many different things about Jesus without it affecting their lives. You can believe all sorts of things about Jesus without it requiring or demanding anything of you. You can respect Jesus. You can believe Jesus was a good person. You can believe, as Muslims do, that Jesus was a prophet, a respected prophet. But believing these things about Jesus will not make an ounce of difference in eternity. Believing good things about Jesus will not lessen the pain of the fires of hell. Believing Jesus was a prophet will not shield you from the wrath of God. Believing Jesus was important will not bring about the forgiveness of sins. One thing and one thing alone ultimately matters in this life and for all eternity. Do you believe that Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah, the one sent by God as the perfect sacrifice for our sins to appease the wrath of of God, the wrath of the God of heaven. In this passage, Jesus asked this provocative question in order to underscore the most important reality to our existence. Who do you? Who do I? Who does the person next to you say that Jesus is? Anything less than the confession of Peter will not save you from hell. Anything less than the belief of Peter and those disciples will not rescue you from the wrath of God. Now watch as Jesus unfolds the implications from who he is. As we enter the controversial section of this passage in verse 18, this ha the verse has, and forgive the pun, been the bedrock of Roman Catholic theology for centuries. The papacy rises or falls on this verse. And there's a bit of housekeeping that's in order as we enter into this controversial section. First, Jesus is not here renaming Peter. He did rename Peter, but that was a year or two earlier. John 1.42 describes Simon's entry into discipleship and the new moniker that Jesus ascribed to him, the name Peter. Interestingly, Peter, or Petros, was far from a common name. In fact, it was unheard of. As far as we can ascertain, there is no record of the name Petros, or Peter, in the, you know, the Greek-speaking world prior to the New Testament. It was a strange name. It was an unusual name. Our nephew, who is just beginning to speak, will point to a person and sometimes call them by a word that he associates with them. My dad, he calls tractor. I'll let, leave it to your imagination to figure out why. And Elise, well, her name is haircut. At least he's used it once or twice. That's about how strange the name Peter would have sounded to the ears of those listening, to his contemporaries. But he already had that name when we come to this passage. Jesus is just reminding us that he had already given him that name. We also need a very brief language lesson here before we continue. You see, we have 
two different words here for rock or stone. First, you are already familiar with Petros. That's what it means, rock or stone. But there's another very similar sounding word. Not the word Petros, but the word Petra. And it is different. It signifies a rock, but it is primarily used with regard to larger, stronger, more significant rocks or mountains or crags. And so Jesus says here, you are Petros, and upon this Petra, I will build my church. I want you to keep those two terms in mind, Petros and Petra. I promise they'll be important, and you will want to remember each of them. Now, here's the problem with this passage, and we really need to consider three possible answers Here's the problem. Who or what is the rock upon which Christ will build his church? That's the crux of it. That's the question. One option is that Peter, the man, is the rock. A second option is that it's Peter's confession, his declaration. When he said that Jesus is the Christ, those words, that declaration became the foundation, the rock upon which the church would be built. Much like our declaration of independence has become the foundation for the building of our country. A third option is that the rock is Jesus Christ himself. The rock upon which the church is built is Christ. Let's examine them briefly. The first possibility that Peter is the rock upon which the church is built is the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. However, I will suggest, and probably a little bit more than suggest, strongly state there are several problems with this view. You see, if Jesus and Matthew had intended to say that Simon, as an individual apostle, completely separate from the rest of the apostles, and other disciples of Jesus was the thing on which Christ would build his church, then there's a whole lot easier way to say this. There's actually many other ways to say this that would have been a lot easier and clearer. For example, he could have said, you are Peter, and upon you I will build my church. Or you are Petros, and upon this Petros I will build my church, using the same Greek word for Peter. But Christ does neither of those things. Instead, he switches from Petros to Petra, a related but different Greek term, and this prevents a simple and automatic conclusion that Simon the man is the foundation of the church that Jesus will build. To put it simply, similarity does not equal sameness. Similar terms, but they're not the same terms. And so there is some distinction being called for here. Additionally, Thinking contextually, if you were to read ahead, and some of you already have, to Matthew 18, the beginning there, if Peter were the intended head and the foundation of the church, then why do we find the disciples arguing the beginning of chapter 18 over who is going to be the greatest? If Peter's the greatest, Jesus has already settled the matter. Why are they arguing about it? It makes no sense. Finally, we turn to Peter's own testimony. You see, he wrote two books, two of the New Testament books, First and Second Peter. And Peter's own testimony argues against this conclusion. James Boyce notes concerning First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Peter does not suggest, even for a moment, that he is the rock on which the church is built. You see, that passage in First Peter 2 talks about the building up, the establishing of the household of God, of the building up of the church. But there is not even a hint or allusion to the fact that he is anywhere near the foundation. Rather, he insists that the foundation stone is Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. Peter refers to Jesus as the living stone on which those who believe are like living stones. They are little Christians, little rocks, being built into a spiritual house or temple. Therefore, if others like Peter himself are to be called stones in any sense... It is only because they have been built on Jesus, who is the actual foundation. And Peter goes on in 
those verses to use three Old Testament examples and quotations to further make his point. First, he references Isaiah 28, 16, then Psalm 118, and finally Isaiah 8, 14. I do not believe if you are going to faithfully take Scripture at its face value for what it says, that it is even possible to conclude that Peter is the rock, the rock of the church. And yet the Roman Catholic Church cannot let go of this claim without letting go of the authority and the power they have built over 2,000 years. So it will continue to maintain this claim. And as long as the Lord tarries, Christians will have to respond to this claim. Well, we've said what it's not. What about option number two? Is it the declaration of Peter? There's a certain logic to it. There's a certain appeal to this argument that the Petra, the foundation of the church, is Peter's confession and testimony. This is the predominant view held today by many evangelicals. Men like John MacArthur, for example, teach this view because it has that that logic, that appeal. There's a certain sensicalness to it. And while I understand and appreciate this view, ultimately I cannot accept it. And the reason why is found in the third possibility. You see, the more I study, the more I find myself drawn through my study to Christ being the Petra, the rock upon which the church is built. Firstly, and perhaps most familiar to you, is that Jesus has actually already identified himself in his teaching as the rock or the Petra upon which we should build. You say, wait a second, where is that? Well, you don't have to go far. Turn back to Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 25. Many of the children memorized this verse a few weeks ago as they've been focused on the Word of God through the summer before getting back into their regular study. Matthew 7, 24. Jesus himself speaking near the end of the Sermon on the Mount says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the Petra. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house. Yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the Petra. You see, there are certain unmistakable similarities here to Christ's declaration in 16:18, but there's more. And to find more, you've got to go to the Old Testament. I found myself a bit disappointed with how little time commentary spent in the Old Testament when interpreting this passage. Though I confess I have to always fight against that tendency since I love the study of the Old Testament so much. But these commentaries were strikingly absent in their discussion of the Old Testament. But you see, there's two Hebrew words that are translated consistently as Petra in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And those Greek, those Hebrew words are the words zur and the words selah. Not selah that you find in the Psalms, but selah. They're consistently overwhelmingly translated as Petra. The only times they're not translated as Petra are in poetic texts, like the Psalms. And sometimes they do appear as Petra, but other times they get an interpretive translation, something like stronghold, deliverer, strength, help, truth, or some other word. But again, that's an interpretive, and really it's an application of the term Zur Selah, which otherwise would be translated as Petra. Here's what I find fascinating. I think you may agree with me on this. After you read these passages, I don't think Jesus was introducing anything new in Matthew 16, 18. At least with regard to being the rock. The church, that's another story. But the rock, the idea of the Messiah or the Christ and God as Petra had long been established. There are at least a couple dozen passages, probably more, but 
We'll just look at two this morning to illustrate what I mean. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 22. David, writing here, David, the foreshadow of the Messiah. He says in 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 2, and I'm going to insert the word Petra where it would be Salah or Azur. David says, The Lord is my Petra and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my Petra, in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold, my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. Turn with me a little bit further to the right to Isaiah chapter 8. This is one of the passages that Peter himself refers to in 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you look at Isaiah 8 beginning down at verse 14, you'll read, And he, as the Lord of hosts, shall become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a petra of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many shall stumble on it, that is, the petra. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. And just for curiosity's sake, notice verse 16, and think about how Matthew 16, verse 20 ends. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. Interesting similarity there. In 1 Peter 2, Peter quotes Isaiah 8, 14 and refers to Jesus as the Petra of offense when describing building the house of God, the church. You see, Jesus is not introducing anything new with regard to his character. The new information, the emphasis in verse 18, is the church, the ecclesia, that will be built upon the rock, which is Christ. Peter, well, he's in the background. His name was just a pun, a foil, if you will, upon which to talk about the rock. Now, notice what Jesus says next. The gates of Hades, or hell will not overpower it. Grammatically, the it here could refer to either the Petra or the church, the ecclesia. However, given that Jesus is the rock, I think the context strongly indicates that it's the gates of hell that will not overpower the foundation, the rock upon which the church is built. Just as the wind and the waves of Matthew 7, 24 will not harm the house because it is on the rock. You see, there is nothing intrinsic to the church itself that protects it. It is because it is founded, it is built upon the rock that it is protected. And the gates of hell, well, that's an interesting term. Think about it for a second. Again, if you're familiar with this passage, you read it very quickly, and it's a familiar term, and yet you may not have stopped and thought about it. But think about it. The gates of hell, what does that mean? I mean, the gates? Why am I afraid of the gates? It's hell itself. It's what's behind those gates. It's the devil and his demons. It's death. Well, it is an interesting term. And simply put, we'll, it's something we call metonymy, where a word or a phrase is used to describe its several parts. Encompassed within gates of hell is death, the devil, demons, false teaching, and the list goes on. It's a reference to everything that we think of when we think of hell and Satan. And yet at the forefront stands Jesus' power over death. When you think of hell, when you think of Hades, you cannot separate that from death itself. And it's death that was conquered when he rose again the third day. It was death from which the sting was removed by offering forgiveness of sin, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Death, the devil, and demons are powerless before the rock. And by extension, 
Because the church is on the rock, powerless against the church, it will stand. But it will stand because it's on the rock. This does not, of course, guarantee that an individual believer or a specific church may not succumb. We see this in Revelation with the letters to the churches. We've seen it throughout history. The promise is to the worldwide body of believers, not an individual gathering. As one commentator noted, this is the tenet of faith to which we cling despite the fracturing, the corruption, and the demise of so many Christian institutions. And because our faith is not in the ecclesia or the church, but in the Petra or Christ, as the bedrock and the cornerstone of our faith, we do not need to be shaken when a person, an organization, or even a local church falters or fails. You see, if you put your faith and your hope in the wrong place, the wrong person, it will be shaken. It's not to say we are not saddened, disheartened, discouraged, but our faith is not shaken. That's very different. Now, that's quite a bit to swallow, although we've looked at this morning. And I'm reluctant to pile on further, but at the risk of losing the flow and letting a week go by where we forget the context and connections, I'm going to try and move quickly through the last two verses. Because the Roman Catholic Church sees Peter as the rock, they continue to claim that these keys were given only to Peter. And thus the Pope is the direct successor who holds these keys, whatever these keys mean. However, as we've already indicated, Peter is standing here as a representative of the disciples. We can see several examples of this throughout the New Testament, the Gospels specifically, even though in Acts. But Jesus' declaration here is to the disciples. Specifically, I believe, to the twelve through Peter. It's through Peter that he's addressing all of the disciples together because it was through Peter that the disciples answered. So Jesus responds to Peter and all the disciples standing there with him. And what Jesus says in verse 19 is that he gives them the keys of the kingdom. Now, what does that mean? What are these keys? Well, what do keys do? They grant entrance. They unlock. Yes, they lock, but when we think of closing something, we don't think of keys doing that. We think of the lock that locks it. Keys, they open. They open something. They grant entrance. And where do these keys grant entrance to? Into the kingdom of heaven. We see a similar scene, if you want to turn there, just a few pages to the right in Matthew 23, 13. Only here, it's the scribes and Pharisees shutting persons out of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 23, 13, we read, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven, from people, for you do not enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. That word shut off there, or closed off, it's actually the verbal form of the word keys. And so these keys open here the kingdom of heaven. And this fits perfectly with the warning we had just been given a few verses earlier that Jesus had reminded them of to beware the leaven and the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Why? Because it closes off the kingdom of heaven. It shuts people out of the kingdom of God. Jesus, on the other hand, will be giving them teaching and instruction that opens the kingdom of God. And what of the binding and loosing? Well, binding and loosing had several different connotations in Israel. It depended very much upon the context, but it ultimately it had this in common. It had to do with conduct. You could go a number of different places with that. In fact, we will go there with that in Matthew 18, where we see binding and loosing appear again. But depending upon context, it had slightly different implications. But it always seemed to refer to how one conducts themselves and the implications from how they conduct themselves. But notice here the verb tenses when it refers to binding and loosing. What do you read? 
So not whatever you bind in heaven will then be loosed, will then be bound in heaven, or whatever you loose on earth will then be loosed in heaven. What does it say? Shall have been. It's a past perfect. It's already been done. Notice that whatever the binding and loosing mean, it has already been decreed in heaven. It is the will of God. In other words, the disciples are not doing this of their own accord. This is not the something the disciples get to go and make up and decide what they want to do here. They're simply doing the will of God. And here's the teaser. I'll leave you with it and encourage you to study this on your own. What I believe this is a reference to is the teaching and the instruction the apostles provide under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit throughout the New Testament. That they will be empowered to do this. As they are given the keys that open the kingdom of God, they will also be given instructions related to the conduct of the household of God. We certainly see that. But I'll leave that a bit with you to tease out a bit further. But as they are sent forth at the end of Matthew... Matthew chapter 28, into all the world, they speak and they act as those inspired by God. And the instructions they provide and the teaching we have in the rest of the New Testament directs and instructs our behavior in accordance with the will of God, God's will. What does Peter himself say? We are to be holy as God is holy. So here's the question, when do they get the keys? You notice there it was future tense, right? They will receive. And you will do this. Don't, don't miss that future tense. In Matthew 16, it's still future. Jesus says, will give. It governs both the keys and the binding and the loosing. What does Jesus say at the end of Matthew 18 after his resurrection? Verses 16 through 19. The authority I have from the Father, I what? Leave with you. Specifically the twelve. To go into the world and begin making disciples. Baptizing them and teaching them all that he has commanded. Having said all of this, Jesus' final words here in verse 20 may seem a bit puzzling. Tell no one that I am the Christ. And Jesus, you may remember, does this or something similar to this several times in his ministry where he instructs the disciples or some persons, don't say anything. Don't tell anyone. Now, the reasons, and this is very important, the reasons vary depending upon context. It's not, he doesn't do it the same way with the same reason each time. There's a different reason why he does this in each place. And you've got to pay attention to the context to discern that. But here, the context would seem to indicate that the warning is centered. Notice, he doesn't say, don't tell anyone that I'm the Son of God, or the Son of Man, or that I was sent from God. No, those things have already been declared. But don't tell anyone that I am the what? The Christ. The Messiah. The long-awaited one. That seems counterintuitive. How else are they to enter the kingdom of heaven? You see, the expectations of the Messiah have been turned on their head in Israel at this time. They have been interwoven into a political and temporal expectation. And the meaning of Messiah or Christ was convoluted at this point in Israel's history. What they wanted was a political Messiah. The risk of getting too far off track, we still want that today, don't we? Whatever side of the aisle your politics fall, we find ourselves wishing and wanting a political Messiah who will alleviate our suffering. Even Christians fall into this trap. We want someone who will alleviate our suffering, our fear, and our pain, and we become too preoccupied thinking that government or some person will somehow save us, at least temporarily. They'll provide us with that security that we want. The problem is will never find that satisfaction here on earth. And so to avoid these wrong expectations, Jesus will spend much of the rest of his ministry teaching, explaining, and preparing persons to understand what a right expectation of the Messiah and the kingdom of God entails. Until that time, just as Isaiah said in Isaiah 8.14, the disciples are to bind this up 
to hold on to it. Until Matthew 28, 16 through 19, where they then are to go forth and proclaim these things in light of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Son of the living God, Messiah Jesus Christ. We've covered a lot this morning. There is a lot in these few verses. And you may be wondering, how am I to respond to all of this? What am I going to do with all of this? I mean, I now know Petros and Petra. I know there's a couple Hebrew words that I can't pronounce. But what do I do with the rest of this information? Well, to answer that question, I want to return to the most important question that can ever be asked of you. What do you believe about Jesus Christ? You see, there's two types of people sitting here this morning. Despite all the differences that exist in the world, when you get down to it, there's only two groups of people that are sitting here this morning. Either the living God has revealed Jesus Christ to you as the only one who can save you from the great wrath to come because of your sin, or he has not. Look carefully at Jesus' response to Peter and note its implication. Flesh and blood did not reveal. You see, the only way a person can come to this realization is through divine revelation. But don't let that discourage you. Even though you cannot reason yourself into saving faith, even though saving belief must be divinely granted, hope is not lost. In fact, if it were up to you, that's the only way it would all be lost. If your honest answer to our study this morning to that question of who is Jesus, if your answer sounds more like the crowds, you respect Jesus, you think highly of him, but when it comes down to it, you cannot say that you believe Jesus is the Christ, that he is your Savior, your Rock, and your Lord, then there's only one thing you need to do this morning. Do not give up hope. Do not stop looking. Do not stop seeking. Do not stop praying. Do not stop crying out to the rock of salvation. Ask the Lord to give you that belief. Not just mere intellectual assent, but the belief that Jesus is the Son of God sent into this world to deliver you and me from our sins. Cry out to the Lord for understanding. This faith is a gift that can only come from God himself. But here's the good news. This is the great news. In the history of mankind, God has never turned away any person who sincerely cried out for this belief and understanding. Not one. So cry out. Pray for this understanding and this belief. That leaves us with the other group here this morning. Those who have already been granted this gift of faith that comes through the washing, the regeneration, and renewing of the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of your sins. For us, the story doesn't end here. The mission has just begun. The keys to the kingdom of heaven have been handed down through faithful persons for centuries, not from pope to pope, but from believer to believer from faithful believer to faithful believer. And if you're sitting here this morning with belief that Jesus is the Son of the living God, that He is the Messiah, He is the Christ, He is the hope for all mankind, He is the hope for eternity, then you have the keys of the kingdom. You have the teaching. If you have the keys to a locked room and that room was set on fire, would you stand by watching people burn? Or would you rush to the door with those keys? Christ could have chosen to build his church many different ways, but the manner chosen, the best manner in his providential, sovereign understanding was through faithful disciples who would preach and teach the word of God. The Word of God, which is found in these 66 books of the Bible. 
So how are you doing with that? Have you taken time to preach and proclaim the gospel week to your kids, to your family members, to your neighbors, to your coworkers, even to strangers? Do you pray for the Lord to provide thoughtful conversation and opportunities? Do you even care persons are perishing? Perhaps the first step is to pray for your own concern for the perishing. To not be like Jonah, who we've looked at this summer, who cared only for his own salvation and little for that of others. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you can and should be asking, am I acting like it? Is your life one of repentance? Is it one of serving others? Is it one that people look at and say, she reminds me an awful lot of Jesus Christ? Or when I am around him, it makes me want to be more like Jesus. When you are talking, what do you talk about? Do you concern yourself with the weather or are you concerned with eternity and preparing for the life to come? Let's pray. Father, we come to a text like this and we rejoice. We rejoice because we see this great testimony, this great confession that you are the rock. And the comfort that brings, the security that brings, that you are the Messiah, the long-awaited one, and all of the hope that is bound up in what it means that you are Christ. All that we will see in the weeks to come as we see you fulfill prophecy after prophecy after prophecy leading up to your death, your burial, and your resurrection. Father, help us to live in light of this great confession. For those who cannot confess you as Christ, that you will give them that saving faith. For those of us that do confess you as Christ in faith, that we would live like it and we would use those keys faithfully. We thank you for the study this morning. We thank you for your spirit, whom you have given to help us understand and guide us and lead us into all truth. In your name, amen.